You're the kind of person who makes a difference at work. So why not work on something that makes a difference? At Zooks, we're looking for collaborative, inquisitive people who can help us achieve our mission. Safer, cleaner, more enjoyable mobility for everyone. Come build the future at Zooks. Find out more at zoox.com slash careers. Make your next career move your best. Verizon Retail offers the potential to earn up to $50,000 annually and amazing benefits starting on day one, including product discounts and tuition assistance. Apply today at verizon.com forward slash retail careers. All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Eric Reynolds. He and I had a, a long conversation before tonight. Uh, t- today is Friday, September 6th. Uh, we talked about his involvement in a very important and very current case, commonly known as the Central Park Five case that took place uh, in New York City uh, in 19, April 19th, 1989. And we are going to cover a lot of material here. And uh, this Eric has a very important first-person perspective in the situation of what really happened in that case. And he's going to uh, talk about that and provide us with some very important overlooked facts. So, Eric, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Awesome. Well, William, thank yes. you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, I'm just delighted that you agreed to the interview and that we spent so, a lot of time talking about the this, what you called a saga, which is, I think, absolutely an appropriate term for the Central Park Five criminal case that really is still current uh for me i drive i'm in la and here there's all these billboards with this as when they see us uh documentary that's on netflix with statements like it's a masterpiece 15 emmy awards or all these kind of awards that are lauded on this and uh, there's definitely a lot more to that story so for people who don't know your name can you talk about how you you know you're working for the NYPD and and what start you were really the arresting officer there are pictures of you with members of what became known as the Central Park Five which is something of a misnomer because there were so many other arrests that took place that night but uh, of course you can um, add a lot more information to that so if you could just talk about the case from the beginning that'd be great thank you okay well to start off with my partner and I Bobby Powers we're assigned to Central Park, and we were uh, anti-crime officers. We were uh, in plain clothes, and we our job was to make arrests for violent crime and violent crimes in progress on the street. Our job was to take guns off the street, to get robbers, to get rapists, to get carjackers, to, you know, to, to get these people before they got to you as a you know as a law-abiding citizen. Um, on April 19, 1989, we were uh, working from 4 p.m. till 12 midnight, and we were uh, uh, we had a uh, parks department van because, of course, we worked in Central Park, and that was the best cover that we had. Um, anyway, um, we had started after about nine o'clock. We started getting a lot of radio runs. And we got a lot of people coming into the precinct uh, complaining about a large group of, of teenagers 
you know, and they described them as black and Hispanic that were beating people up, that were robbing people, that were, you know, doing, committing all sorts of violent acts and creating all sorts of mayhem. Right. Uh, my partner and I, uh, Bobby, and uh, and actually the rest of all the, the, you know, the patrolmen in Central Park and the adjoining precincts, by the way, started combing the park looking for them. Um, now, for people that don't, understand, don't know Central Park, Central Park is over 700 acres of parkland, and it's created to be to create the sense that you're not in an urban metropolis. You know, you go into Central Park and you can easily forget that you're in the middle of Manhattan. And it's designed to be that way. And while that's good for you as a tourist and as a person who's enjoying the park, if you're a bad guy and you're trying to hide from the police, it makes it easier for you to get away from us because of you know, because it's just so lush and rolling and, you know, there's just so much, you know, so many places that you can hide. Anyway, um, at one point we got a radio run of a, uh, a male that was beaten, beaten on the west side of, the, of Central Park. Um, he was a teacher by the name of John Lachlan, and um, he was beaten so savagely that uh, the officer that found him, Officer Mark Carlson, described him as having his, he looked like he had his head dunked in a bucket of blood. That's how badly beaten he was. Both of his eye sockets were shattered. He had skull fracture. Um, he, was, he was lucky to have survived the attack. And um, as a result of that, because we had been looking for the group, you know, all night long and, and we couldn't find them. Um, when that attack occurred, my partner and I realized, okay, that was, that happened on the west side of the park. There was a lot of police cars in the park looking for the, the group. And, you know, as police officers, we know after a certain period of time when criminals committing crimes and there's a lot of police starting to look for them, the first thing they do is look to get out of there you know, to flee. Right, right. And uh, um, what we did was we, uh, we left the park and we went, we were going to look on the west side, you know, of, of the park, you know, the areas of Manhattan west of Central Park, which was Central Park West, Amsterdam Avenue, Columbus Avenue. Um, you know, there's a couple of avenues further on. Anyway, as soon as we left the park at 102nd Street, there they go. There's the group. There's like 30 of them. And my partner and I look at each other like, holy cow, there they go. We've been looking for them all night. But we realized, you know what? There's two of us. There's like 30 of them. We're going to end up with, you know what, maybe two, three, if we're lucky because the group's going to scatter if we try to, you know, uh, try to apprehend them all. Anyway, long story short, we ended up with five. We ended up with five of them. Okay. Uh, we had Raymond Santana, 
Stephen Lopez, Kevin Richardson, um, Lamont McCall, and Clarence Thomas. Now, we had two of the original Central Park, what's described as the Central Park Five. Right, gotcha. Um, and as were, soon as we apprehended... They were all young, between the ages of 13 and 15, too, right? So they were kind of uh, early teen children, or kids, I guess. You know what? I mean, looking back at it now, they're described as teenagers. If if you were there on the scene and you, you know, you were accosted by them or you saw them coming, you would not have been thinking of young kids, young boys. Interesting. You'd have been thinking, you know what? Hoodlums, you know, these guys are not, they're not looking to make friends with people. You would have immediately crossed from the other side of the street because you know that they were looking to do they, they weren't looking to to help old ladies across the street. Let's, gotcha. let's just put it that way. Would you would okay, you say still, they were physically mature for their age? Absolutely. Okay. And then, absolutely. What was their demeanor when you arrested them? Well, when we first got them, they started crying and they said, "We know who did the murder. It was Antron McRae. We'll show you where he lives." Now we didn't even know who Antron McRae was, and when they said they, you know, they know who did the murder, we assumed that they talk, they were talking about John Lachlan, the teacher that they had beaten, whose head I earlier described as looking like it was dunked in a bucket of blood. Gotcha. So our assumption was they were talking about him. Now this was at ten o'clock at night. The jogger had not been found. We knew nothing. No one except for them knew about the jogger. So, you know, we, we had the five kids and they were all juvenile. And now I have to process them as juvenile arrest, which is different than adult arrest. Right. Um, much more paperwork. It's uh, probably going to end up with, you know, no punishment, no type of real, um, consequences you know to the defendants so you know it was it, it was one of those you know like most cops in new york making a juvenile arrest is not high on your list of priorities because but, you know nothing's going to happen to them and, and kind of a waste of time right and you're not allowed to interview them or formally question them without their parents but you arrested five but there was a total of it like a huge total of young men that were arrested. It was something like 50 overall in Central Park. Is that correct? There was around 50 by their count. Because Raymond Santana, when we saw the group, when we saw the 30 kids across the street from us, Raymond Santana and Stephen Lopez were in the front of the pack. And they were, you could tell, you could tell like this wasn't, you know, as a cop, you can you can read crowds. You know, you can tell, you know, like a cohesive group versus um, a group of people that just came out of a movie theater. You know, a movie just ended and a large group of people just came out. And you could tell they're not all together. They don't all know each other. They're not all, you know, uh, you know, have one objective. 
these kids were different. You, when you saw the group, you realized it was a cohesive group. You saw Raymond Santana and Stephen Lopez in the front, and as Santana's walking, he's walking backwards, and he's addressing the group. So you can see that he somehow has some kind of, you know, like he's, he's leading them in some way or another. Interesting. We couldn't hear what he was saying from where we were, from our vantage point. But we could tell he was, you know, he had some kind of influence over, over the group. Right. And there were other criminal acts, not just Laughlin, but there was somebody else who was an attempted assault and uh, just other kind of general mayhem. Oh. Yeah. There was, the, there was the couple on the tandem bike who, they actually moved out of the city after that. Wow. Because that, that's how shaken up they were by this. They were riding downhill. And you, you have to be there to see and understand the topography of the, of the park and where they accosted them because they were going downhill. It was a downhill section of the park. So they couldn't stop and start riding back uphill. You know, they would have, there was just no way for them to do that because the group would have had them. They would have been easy pickings. And that's why the, uh, you know, because there's a boyfriend and girlfriend, they're now, I believe they're now married. But he told her, look, just put your head down and pedal as hard as you can. And what they did was, they had gotten the roadway and linked arms and tried to block them, to knock them off the bike. And she said she was frightened out of her mind. You know, they rode as hard as they could and rammed their way through the, this blockade that they had. And she said they were grabbing at her and, you know, trying to tear at her clothes. Wow. So, you know. There was no telling what would have happened to her had they got knocked off the bicycle. Gotcha. Um, there was there was John Lachlan, who I described earlier. There was the jogger. There was a, a gentleman by the name of Antonio Diaz, who, who has since passed away. Um, you know, a man who was on his luck at that time. He, you know, bought, had a beer and some Chinese food that he was going to you know, sit in the park by himself and eat, you know, because that's, I guess that's all he had. And ran into these, these the thugs, and uh, they beat him unconscious, you know, took his food, poured the beer over him, and, you know, he was just, he was just one of, of many. Right. So I mean, it, it reminds me of like the Clockwork Orange or something like that. Just people going from trouble to trouble through different parts of the park, you know. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So what then exactly. what happened next? What happened after the arrest? And there were other people arrested within the next 24 hours as well. Can you re talk a little bit about well, that? See, so what happened? And, and this is what everybody, all major media outlets, skip over. These kids were under arrest for rioting and for assault, right? And I, and I had five of them. Now, while I'm doing the arrest processing, I have to get their parents to come in to come pick them up. So while I'm waiting for them to pick them up, I'm doing the paperwork. 
And around one o'clock in the morning is when the jogger's body is found. That's when the midnight crew, because the people that I was working with that was working from 4 p.m. till 12 midnight, their shift had ended. They all went home. I was still there doing, you know, the arrest uh, processing. And the the late night shift from midnight to 8 in the morning came on. So um, uh, a radio car with uh, Joe Walsh and Bobby Calamay, well, Officer Walsh and Officer Calamay, uh, two guys, I, and I say their full names because I know them well. Um, unfortunately, Bobby's passed away since then. But um, they were having coffee because, you know, look, the late, you're working from midnight to eight in the morning. You're, you're up all night. So you're going to have a cup of coffee or two to keep, you know, to keep alert. And uh, while they were sitting there having their coffee, two guys approached them to say that they found a man. There was a man thrashing in the uh, in the mud down in one of these deeply wooded areas of the park. So, of course, this turns out to be the jogger. Um, she gets removed to Metropolitan Hospital where she's uh, determined to be likely to die. And Night Watch, the Night Watch detectives respond and they find out that I had a group, you know, there was a group of kids that were quote unquote wilding. And despite the lie that Ken Burns has perpetrated, because I've heard him myself say it several times on television, we did not make up that term. I first heard it from them. And, you know, that's that's where it came from. Because that that was um, definitely uh, a term of a lot of consternation. A lot of uh, a lot of people were upset about that. But it came from the Tone Loke song "Wild Thing," right? That's where they supposedly referenced that. Well, I, I'm not sure where they referenced it from, but I can tell you for a fact that it was their term for going out in a large group and beating, assaulting, and robbing people. That was that that was their term for that activity. Um, the that the, the singing they actually the singing of that song Wild Thing actually comes later on. Okay. But but um her body is found, the detectives who are investigating her assault and possible rape um, found out about you know, became aware of of the wilding that took place earlier in the night and also found out that I had five kids under arrest for it and that I would be releasing them to their mothers or their parents and, you know, sending them to family court. So I was contacted by them and told not to release them. Don't release them yet. All right. We want to talk to you and then we want to talk to them. So they talked to me first and they asked me what happened. And I, you know, explained the whole situation, the whole wilding thing and, and who got assaulted and what happened and whatnot. And the detectives told me specifically, we don't think they had anything to do with this, but because they were in the same area at the same time that the jogger was attacked, 
there's the possibility that they may have seen what happened. So before you release them to their parents, we would like to debrief them. We'd like to question them. And this is a common investigative um, technique that we have. Whenever you have a major crime, detectives uh, would, you know, will question people who've gotten arrested in the same area after that crime, because what usually happens is, you know, when someone gets arrested for something and they have information, they have knowledge of another crime that took place, they play a little game we call let's make a deal. Okay, you caught me uh, drug dealing or assaulting people or whatever, but I know about this other case that you want information about. So let's make a deal and I'll, you know, I'll tell you about, you know, what I know about this and I'll, you'll give me a lesser sentence or, you know, some kind of consideration. So we, you know, I had five of them under arrest. The first one, uh, whose name was Lamont McCall, nobody's going to know that name, but he was one of the first that I had arrested and uh, he was with his mother. We read them their rights. We asked him what happened. He said, I was with a bunch of kids. They were beating people up, but I didn't touch anybody. Um, I just saw what happened. And he was asked, well, did you see anything else? And the answer was no. So we let him go. I gave him a death appearance ticket. This is, this is a verifiable Right, and these—I think oh, yeah. these—I think Eric that these facts are important too because there's, I think, a perception that only five people were arrested, but the police went through and talked to so many of the people that night, and there are other charges, not that, not that didn't just involve the Central Park Five, and I just kind of want the listener to understand that there's a lot of right. other cases in regards to this, and the public what really emphasizes just the Central Park Five, which I think is not. Fully accurate, sorry. No, no problem. At this point, though, the, the point that I'm discussing now is the point where we're aware of the jogger having been attacked, right? But we don't have any suspects. And we only have these five kids who are, who are basically our only possible witnesses, our first. You know, our first line of witnesses, our first line of, of um, people that may have seen something. But we, we really, at this point, have no expectation that we're going to get any type of um, information that's going to lead us to whoever attacked this woman. But still, you know, as investigators, you go through every single possible lead that you have. So the first kid, we ask him, he doesn't know anything. We don't mention the jogger because we don't want to put, you know, we don't want to put that in their heads. We want to hear what they have to say. So he doesn't know anything. He claims he knows nothing about it. We let him go. We send him home with his mother. He's gone. There's no rush to judgment. There's no, you know, Linda Fairstein coming down to the precinct and, Right. yelling at us to round up all the black men in Harlem. That is a total fabrication, a total misrepresentation. It's a total lie. It never, ever, ever happened. I, I would, uh, I, 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 
when I saw that, I was flabbergasted because, you know, I, first of all, personally, I wouldn't stand for that for a moment on a personal level, but on a professional level, it doesn't even make sense. Right, it's unbelievable. To just randomly round up people who will have no information, nothing valuable to offer you because they had nothing to do with it. The, the only thing, you know, the only connection they have is that they're black and the people that you're looking for might be black also. Right, and that's like an introductory so, scene from when they see us, was fair steam right. showing up. So, so basically, you know, according to Ava DuVernay, we are engaged in investigative techniques whose only objective, whose only possible result is wasting our time and making it harder to find the people that really had something to do with it. But anyway, the first kid we interview, he knows nothing, and we let him go. Goodbye. Go home with your mom. No problem. We'll see you in family court in a month. The second kid, we interview him. It's the exact same thing. He tells us he doesn't know anything. He, he was with a bunch of kids. They were beating people up. He didn't touch anybody. But he didn't, you know, see anything other than that. Fine. Goodbye. I gave him, you know, the paperwork to go, come back to family court in a month. You know, see you later. The third one was Kevin Richardson, one of the Central Park Five. Now, we asked him the exact same question. He denied having touched anybody or seen any. Well, he saw what happened, but he wasn't involved. But here's the critical difference. Kevin Richardson had a scratch on his face. And the detectives asked him, well, how did you get the scratch? You've got a scratch. How did you get that? And his response was that my partner, Officer Powers, scratched his face when he was arresting him. So the detective said to him, well, you know what? Officer Powers is next door. We're going to ask him, you better be telling the truth. Right? As soon as he said that, Kevin Richardson said, okay, it was the female jogger that scratched me. Now, that, that was like... That was like a, 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 an 8.9 scale so, earthquake on, on the Richter scale. And on he, the Richter scale, that was like an 8.9. Right, we were it, just shocked. And he said that before formal questioning, correct? No, no. He said that while we were getting ready to release him okay. to his mother. Okay, sorry. After we read him his rights, okay. and we read, we read him and his mother their rights, and... All we were trying to do was see if he saw anything that might lead us to the person that attacked gotcha. the jogger, Patricia, Patricia Mealy. We didn't think he had anything to do with it. It was Kevin Richardson who broke it. It was basically Kevin Richardson who broke it open for us, who first admitted Yes, we had something to do with the attack on the jogger. Yes, I got scratched on the face when we were hiding in the bushes. And we saw her coming, 
and we jumped out and we tackled her and we dragged her into, you know, into the, uh, into an area of the park that was heavily forested. You, you just couldn't, even in the day, if you go into this part of the park, it's like dark. You, you, it's so, the foliage is so dense. It's, it's almost like it's nighttime in there. Gotcha. So we had, we were shocked. We were shocked. We were shocked for two reasons. The first reason was, one, we didn't think they had anything to do with it, right? And two, we had let a couple of them go already. So we realized, oh, shit, these guys were involved. We just let a couple of them go. We got to go get them. We got to go get them and bring them back. Because obviously they were involved because Kevin Richardson told us, started telling us the story with his mother present. There's, there's no coercion. You know, there's no sleep deprivation. And, and here's the other thing that people don't understand. And this is, this is one of the big lies perpetrated by Ken Burns and Sarah Burns. The idea that we interrogated them for 30 hours straight is a total fabrication. It's a total lie. In New York State, the New York State courts in 1986 had passed, uh, passed a law which required every precinct to have a designated and approved juvenile room. So every precinct had to have a room for the purpose of questioning and processing juveniles with the idea of keeping them away from adult defendants. So they had to have separate holding cells separate bathrooms. It had to be an office-like environment. Okay, they had to be, they, they could not be questioned or processed outside of this designated juvenile room. And the, and the, um, the New York State courts had some, they had someone who went and inspected every precinct's juvenile room and certified it. The juvenile room had to be certified as being in compliance with the state court regulations regarding, you know, the, you know, it, what it was, how it was supposed to be laid out. And now imagine we we ended up interviewing thirty-seven kids. So if you're interviewing thirty-seven kids in just one room going one at a time, it's going to take you a hell of a long time. If each kid takes an hour, that's 37 hours. And what happened was these kids, they didn't all know each other. There were varying degrees of familiarity between them. Some kids knew other kids because they lived in the same building. So they knew them by name, they knew they were dressed, they knew where they went to school, they knew everything, right? Then there were some kids 
that knew other kids by nickname. Hey, that's Flacco, who hangs out in the Monroe Project. But he doesn't know his real name, doesn't know what school he goes to or his address or anything. Gotcha. And it, so when we, when we got the first, after Kevin Richardson admitted to having, you know, attacked the jogger and named the other kid, we went and got those three, the ones that we let go, and started questioning them one at a time in the juvenile room individually, which took several hours. And after we questioned them and they gave us more names, then we had to go out and get those kids. And when we got those kids, we brought, we brought them back and we would have to question them individually in the juvenile room with their parents. Their parents had to be present. Right. Anybody under 16, parents had to be present. Parents have to be present. You have to read the, the, the child their rights, or the juvenile. They have to read the juvenile their rights, and you have to read the parents their rights. And both of them have to agree. Right? Now, right. I, you know, for the people who are listening to this right now, I implore you, go to Central Park joggerattackers.com and look at the videos. Look at them in their entirety. Their parents are there. They're, they're not sleep deprived. I mean, you could look at them and see that they're, they're wide awake. They spent most of the time waiting to be interviewed and to be, you know, and to be videotaped. So they, mm -hmm spent most of their time sitting with their parents. They were either eating, sleeping, or just waiting. Yeah, but they were absolutely not being interrogated for 30 hours straight right. by detectives who were yelling and screaming at them. That is an absolute lie, an ab absolute fabrication. It's, it's, look, when we finished the interviews and went from the precinct to the courts, every single major news outlet in the United States, in the United States and probably outside of the U.S., was waiting for us outside. And they had cameras, they took video, and they took still uh, photographs of us. And you saw a couple of them. Correct. Right? Yes. Now, not a single one of them shows any injuries on any of those kids as portrayed in the Netflix series When They See Us by Ava DuVernay. Ava DuVernay portrays one kid getting pounded in the face with a helmet. With a helmet. A police freaking helmet. I watched this. I was like flabbergasted. The other kids are getting slapped and punched around and I defy anybody. If you want to take your vehicle's performance to new heights, you got to give it peak. Like our original equipment technology, antifreeze and coolant, our formulas match the vehicle manufacturer's technology requirements so that we have the perfect match for every vehicle. 
That's one reason why Peak is among the fastest growing brands of coolant in America. We work harder to earn the trust of people like you every day. That's Peak Performance. Make your next career move your best. Verizon Retail offers the potential to earn up to $50,000 annually and amazing benefits starting on day one, including product discounts and tuition assistance. Apply today at verizon.com forward slash retail careers. To provide me with a picture of these kids after they got arrested with any type of physical injuries that in any way resembles what was portrayed in Ava DuVernay's fictional account of the Jogger case. And those, those videotaped uh, interviews are very important because you can see them telling these stories in front of their parents, and Richardson himself points to the scratch on his face. So he's corroborating yeah. this information. It's right there, and you can tell that this is the police are following police uh, legal procedures in conducting these interviews. It's it's very apparent that it's it's you know done in a proper manner, at least for me. Let me tell you something. What people don't point out when they got the lawsuit, when they got paid out, they got paid at the direction of Bill de Blasio. Bill de Blasio appointed Al Sharpton's lawyer to oversee the payment to them. Al Sharpton's lawyer, Zachary Carter, oversaw the payment of the $41 million. And when he paid out the $41 million, he, in his statement, he said that the police and the prosecutors did nothing wrong. This is Al Sharpton's attorney saying this. Al Sharpton's attorney put away a cop for 30 years, several years, several years ago. If you remember the Justin Volpe's case with Abner Loima. Yes, yes, I do it remember was, that. It was, Zach, it was Zachary Carter who prosecuted um, Justin Volpe and got him a 30 year sentence. So, so Zachary Carter is no friend of the police. He's no friend of the police whatsoever. Yet when he paid out that lawsuit, he said it and it's in his press statement, the police and the prosecutors did nothing wrong. There's no improprieties that were committed during the uh, investigation and prosecution of this case. Yeah, the settlement and was very Duvernay, significant. Yeah, forty million. Yeah. Avery Duvernay skips totally over that, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying that the amount in 2014 was forty million dollars, so uh, it was a significant amount of money. Once the settlement happened. Well, you know what? I was I had to go down for several months to the uh, New York City Law Department to get prepared for the civil trial. And we were ready. We were ready to fight the lawsuit because the evidence was there. The evidence was very clear that they had participated in this crime. And all we wanted was for a jury of New Yorkers, a jury of taxpayers, to sit down and listen to the evidence and make a decision based on the evidence. 
we had no qualms with that whatsoever. And, and here's an interesting point. With the Jeffrey Epstein case, if you notice, after Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide, all of his victims were very upset because they wanted their day in court. They wanted to be able to, in a court of law, in front of a jury of their peers, tell how they were victimized by Jeffrey Epstein, right? Correct. The Central Park Five allege, allege that they were victimized, yet not a single one of them wanted to go to trial to tell their story for the world to hear what we allegedly did to them. Right. That's a and very that's important never point. Happened. Very important point. And even their settlement in 2014, there was no um, court proceeding. It was just a, it was just a settlement, right? Well, what happened was this: they had the federal judge that was that had the case, and I hate using this term because it's an oversimplification of of a very complicated you know, a very complicated situation, but she was what you would call an activist judge. She was one of the first female, lesbian, African-American federal judges open, that was open, out in the open, that was, you know, openly gay. She was 100% on their side. She had issued a gag order, you know, prohibiting both sides, them and us, from talking to the press, talking to the public. Yet, for some reason, it only applied to us. That's why they were allowed to make the documentary. When they made that documentary, Ken Burns himself, and people who are listening to this, you can look it up. He, has, he had told several news outlets, and Variety is one of them, that he had made the documentary with the sole purpose of forcing the city to pay the lawsuit. Yeah, wow. And that, that was from 2012, right? His, Ken Burns, for people who don't know, is the same guy who directed the Civil War, um, also World War II documentaries, and he, his Central Park documentary came out in 2012. I... You know what? I was talking to a friend of mine who's a uh, black history professor when the uh, the Ken Burns documentary came out, and um, she noticed I was not, you know, I wasn't too happy. And she asked me, "What's what's the matter with you?" And I said, "Well, there's this documentary that falsely portrays us as having violated, you know, these kids' rights, you know." And that, and I told her it was the Jogger case, and. She said to me, well, you know what, Eric, I know you didn't do anything wrong. And I looked at it and I said, nobody did anything wrong in this. This is a total fabrication. And when I mentioned Ken Burns' name, she said, Ken Burns? She goes, nobody takes Ken Burns seriously. I said, well, yes, they are. People are, are up in arms about this. She said, all right, let me, let me uh, qualify this. No one in the academic world takes Ken Burns seriously. And she was right. 
because I looked up reviews of all of his documentaries and they fell into two categories. The people that loved it were people that didn't know the subject matter previous to seeing his documentaries. And the people that hated them, hated his documentaries were always people who were experts in the field. Fascinating. And all, all you have to do is Google his documentaries, Google the reviews, and you will find the same thing I found. People who are experts in the field that he tries to tackle always hate his documentaries because he's, he's, he just takes all sorts of liberties, always turns everything into something racial. It, it, it's, it's, I was astounded. I was, I was astounded in reading it. And then his daughter also wrote a book about the Central Park Five, and that was kind of, she, I think, did footwork and literally was working for, I think she was a clerk at one of the attorneys for the Central Park Five as well. Is that, isn't that correct? Sarah Burns was an intern for the lawyers for the Central Park Five. Yeah, that's and incredible. And that's why she wrote the book. And I read the book because I'm writing my own book about it. And it, it was so preposterous, the nonsense that she wrote in this thing. One of the things that she blamed, that, that she cited in her book as what turned public opinion against the five was the Pan Am Flight 103 bombing over Lockerbie, Scotland. I don't know if you remember that. Vaguely, yeah. But the uh, Libyans, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, who was the, uh, who's a dictator that was running, you know, who was, who, who was running Libya, Libya at the time. Right. right. He, was a, he was a big sponsor of terrorism, had planted explosives in this Pan Am flight that blew up over Scotland and killed, I don't know how many people. The whole Somehow, plane went down. I think it was a 747, so it was a whole plane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot of people were killed. Yes. And Sarah Burns somehow equates, somehow claims that that bombing was part of the reason why public opinion was against the Central Park Five. And, I, and as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking to myself, what the hell is this? You know, this is, this is nonsense. And, it, you know, if you get a chance to read it, and I would suggest that you, if, if you buy the book, you know, go to Amazon and get a used copy for like 99 cents because... I, I don't think that she should profit, you know, a, a single dime by this thing because of, you know. Fictional? Because of the fact, yes, yes. I, the, 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 the insanity that she writes, it, it's just, it's one thing after another that has no connection to the Jogger case at all. But she does what Ava DuVernay does. She tried to racial animosity she brings up facts and and there are facts that she brings up in her book but they have no relation to the central park five whatsoever so 
while you're reading it, you know, it, it, it's, and I was enraged myself reading some of these, you know, some of these examples of racism from 150 years ago in the, in the deep South, you know, like, you still have to say to yourself, well, wait a second, you know, putting my anger aside at these atrocities, what the hell do they have, <clears throat> do they have to do with, you know, with these kids running through Central Park and beating and nearly killing people? You know, right. nothing. There's no connection whatsoever. And she makes no connection. And she doesn't care if she makes a connection or not because her only purpose is to incite people's passion. To, you know, to right. remind people that there were racial injustices in this country and this must be part of it. You know, well, you know what? There were lynchings. And there was slavery, and there were all there was Jim Crow, so this is part of it, and it's preposterous. Well, it's interesting you bring it, that up because I watched Duvernay's other documentary, which I think was the Thirteenth Amendment, and it seemed like she was doing the same thing in that documentary, where she was bringing up these horrors of the past, and then equating the present to those horrors of like. Uh, Jim Crow and all those other things. So it seems to be a recurring theme. They, you know what? They were doing, Ava DuVernay and Sarah Burns were doing the exact same thing that Jesse Smollett did when he, when he faked that attack against himself. Because when I first heard that, I, it didn't make sense to me. They called him the N-word they called him anti-gay slurs. They put a noose around his neck. They splashed him with bleach. And I'm like, wait a second. This sounds like... Oh, and they had the, uh, the Donald Trump Make America Great right. on. And they knew he was on the show Empire, which, uh, you know, right. may not, the white supremacy may not be, want to be on the top of their watching list. But, but it seemed as though that these people that attacked them had some sort of racist checklist where they had to check off all the racist stuff that you can do to a black person. You know, we, oh, we got the news, check. You know, we called them the N-word, check. Uh, we threw bleach on them, check. We, uh, you know, it, it was right. like, that's, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't, you know, this, this seems to be this seems to have been done to cover all of the bases to make sure that people believe that it was a racial incident. I agree. And that's what DuVernay does. If, if Ava DuVernay could have got away with portraying us as having lynched these kids, she would have had that in there. The problem is, it never happened. And she could have never proved it, and people would have realized it was, a, you know, a, a total farce. But you know, she tried to touch on every single racial stereotype of, you know, of police abuse and misuse of power. You know, right. and just she she tried to cover every single one of them. You but know, Linda Fairstein coming in and saying round up all the blacks and you know and beating them up 
and and being outraged that a white woman was attacked and and calling them animals and, and I just I just looked at it and it just I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I just thought to myself, this is crazy. Yeah, well, I had the same what kind is, of opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think that what's what's really disturbing about when they see us is that it's presented as nonfiction. I think that it's supposed to be presented as something that isn't idiosyncratic or subjective. And when you watch it, that's exactly what it is. So I think that that's kind of its inherent dishonesty is that this is not a fair assessment from multiple, you know, different viewpoints. This is just some kind of Hollywoodized version. I think that that, uh, you know, is very scary and it had real world effects. It affected Fairstein and Letterer's reputation. And like you said, if you go to centralparkattackers.com or whatever that website was, you can listen to Letterer talking to some of the the people, the young men, and, and it's pretty clear that she's just doing her job. So uh, the real world effects, I think Fairstein lost a job teaching and Letterer had to quit one of her advisory boards or something because they're of their this fictional depiction in the film what's what's amazing about that it was linda fairstein that had to, to resign from an advisory board for uh, uh women who were victims of domestic okay, sorry. violence sorry. and elizabeth letterer was a uh, adjunct professor at columbia university but it's it's amazing to me that that these two women who did absolutely nothing wrong are the victims of a kind of mob mentality. You know, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, the Columbia Black Law Association, the ones who demanded that, that Elizabeth Lederer resign as an adjunct professor, I guarantee you not a single one of them went and reviewed a actual legal document related to the case and made their decision based on that. I guarantee you that their decision was based on the Netflix series and not on legal documents, which when they become lawyers and they're in the legal arena, they would have to use when arguing any type of case. Right. And there's so many that you and you, know, you and I have talked about. There was the Ryan report that there was another reinvestigation. There was the Armstrong hearing. So there this, like you have said, it's a saga and there's been investigations and reinvestigations. They had not the, the woman who or the, the, the young woman who started the petition to um, have Linda have uh Linda Fairstein removed from the, uh, uh, I forgot what college she had graduated from. I think it was Vassar. I think you're right. You know, Vassar, from board, yes. Yeah, Vassar. From the board of advisors. I guarantee you she did not look at a single um, confession video. She did not look at a single legal document. All she did was watch a TV program and start some petition and got a mob behind her to force Linda Fairstein to, to quit, to, to, to leave her advisory board and stop doing work and raising money for a, an extremely worthy cause. Yeah, great point. Yeah, it's you know, sh shameful. And, and, the, and what kills me 
what kills me is this. If you commit some kind of crime, right, you, you do your time, and you get out, and they make you do community service. I'm, I'm losing you just right? a little bit there, Eric. Can you restate that, please? So when you commit a crime, right, you do your time, you, they might put you on probation or whatever, and sometimes they make you do community service, right? So Linda Fairstein is doing community service in serving on these advisory boards, and they force her to stop doing that as her, as her punishment. So it's like, well, wait a second. People who have committed crimes are forced to do community service. Linda Fairstein is doing community service of her own free will because she feels it's the right thing to do, and these people don't want her doing it anymore. They don't want her helping people that need her help. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's but, it's amazing how ignorant people are. Yes. How yes. how un you know. But get this, it's even worse because you had this system that's put in place to ensure justice to go through the police and the attorneys and the judicial proceeding with the jury that found these people guilty, and then you have the court of public opinion that doesn't have any of these checks and balances that ensure justice take place having real-world effects decided on emotional, mobocratic principles on people who... It's just an outrage. It's so outrageous. It's just disgusting, yeah. It's astounding. But you want to know something? Yes. I believe most people understand that they had some participation in it. The problem is today, if you're to, if, if you're to say that a black person was actually guilty, right? You're a racist. Right. You're certain. If you're white and you say that you're definitely a racist. I mean, you can't, when I was a cop, I used to, I used to joke with the, with the white guys and say, Hey, you know, you, you can't you can't have an opinion about that. You're white. <laughs> You're you can't you you don't have any right to say anything anymore. You you've lost that. And we would laugh. We would laugh, but you know, the, uh, the honest to God truth is that's where we're going. That's you know. That's if we're not we're, there it, already, you know, if we're not there already, so. Oh, we're there. Yeah. We we're there. And it, it's it's. It, it's, it's bothersome that yeah. the truth doesn't matter anymore. And it's also, you know, it's interesting you make that point of like not looking at these court documents because it's not, I've done, had the wherewithal or whatever to look at some of these other cases, whether it's Adnan Syed, West Memphis 3, uh, Making of a Murder. A lot of these court documents are available. They're almost never referenced in any of the films made about these people or any of like whether it's serial uh, or something like that. And it's like, why aren't you guys seeing what the people on the ground, people like you, who had firsthand knowledge and recorded what happened, why doesn't that matter? I don't, I don't understand no. that. Like, there's not that instinct to go, what happened? Is that available? Some of these cases are the, the, the level of detail in keeping um, records and uh, p- compiling evidence is incredibly astute. And they just look over it. It's like, I don't understand that. No. Well, you... Look, here's the problem. You can't let the facts get in the way of your opinion. 
Oh, you know, you can't you you can't let concrete evidence sway the way that you think. People mm. don't want to do that. Well, it's also I think activism is also I think I would consider, in my opinion, Ava DuVernay an activist uh, filmmaker, and so I think that she might see her thing and what a prism her worldview and through this prism. So I think that that might be the same way with some of these other criminal cases that are really I mean, true crime is right now probably one of the biggest podcasting sec segments and you just see this same theme roll through all these different podcasts it's incredible well you know it's interesting you know the the issue of of Avery duvernay trying to um trying to create something with this you know with this series but here's the question what's the end game she's created this outrage Right, she's created this anger. Yes. And what does it do? What is it doing for black people? What is this lie doing? It's making white people, right? It's making non-blacks believe that you know any claim by a black person of racism and injustice is suspect because there's so many times that it's that it's not true, like the Michael Brown hands up don't shoot um incident in Ferguson you know in Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri. And for black people who hear it, what does it do to them? It it reinforces the thought that the police are their enemy. Right. And black people rely on the police more than any other ethnic group because we're the victim of of you know violent crime at an exponential rate in comparison to other, other ethnic groups. So when we get, when we have an encounter with the police, you know, because of the Avery DuVernay, um, you know, portrayal of, of what occurred in Central Park, there's a lot of black people that believe, you know, hey, this is my enemy. Right. This, is, this, is, this person's not here to help me. This is my enemy. And it creates conflict that might not have otherwise happened. So yeah, excellent point. And I think it makes it the who, yeah, it doesn't benefit. It creates a whole suspicion of the system as well. Police, prosecutors, right. judges. It's all against me. Look at the injustice of these young guys, and the, you know their portrayal of them in even these billboards I mentioned earlier is like they're young men playing the trumpet or. You know, they're not perceived maybe as people who are out in the middle, uh, late at night doing harm, you know. So you're right, though. It, I, I don't, I don't, th I don't, the game, the, is it just, is maybe that is her activism intent is to draw these lines and also to reinforce this, you know, distrust. Maybe that, that's part of her aim. I don't know. Well, there, there is no end game. There is, there's, there's no end game that's going to be beneficial to black people. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. You know, Jonathan, um, Jonathan Capehart, who, who's an MSNBC uh, contributor. He's, uh, you know, he does, um, he writes, I think he writes for the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. He wrote a column after the Michael Brown shooting. And the column was titled, Hands Up, 
don't shoot was a lie. And he researched the whole Michael Brown shooting by Darren Wil- by police officer Darren Wilson. And he, in, in reading the documents, now remember, that was investigated by Barack Obama's Justice Department headed by Eric Holder. Okay, so there's no Trump involved. There's no, you know, Republicans. There was no, none of that. None of those talking points could be used to to claim that, you know, that nothing came of this because, you know, the Republicans were in office. That's not the case. Jonathan Capehart looked at the evidence. He read the report and he's. He saw exactly what Eric Holder's Justice Department saw, that Michael Brown attacked after, after shoplifting, right? And the police were called right. and being confronted by the police, fought with Darren Wilson, tried to take his gun, and was killed trying to take a gun from a police officer. And Jonathan Capehart, a black man, he got he got hell for it. He got hell for telling the truth. Because people don't want to hear it. Yeah, that's that's a shame. That's unfortunate. Well, Eric, we are uh, way past an, uh, well, about five minutes past an hour, longer than most of my other interviews. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, or anything I missed, or you know, talk about your book, the pending book, or anything like that? Oh my God! Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can do a follow up. <laughs> we could do like a ten-part follow up because there's so many aspects to the story. Because we haven't talked about Mateus Reyes, right. right? Right. We haven't talked about the Al Sharpton Bill De Blasio connection. Yes. We haven't talked about the feud between Linda Fairstein and Nancy Ryan, who we investigated the case. Right. Because Nancy Ryan and Linda Fairstein hated each other. Hated each other. Gotcha. And that's an Linda, important thing. For people who don't know, Ryan, Ryan was the one who was wrote the report, the follow-up report that ended up in their exoneration in 2002, correct? Right. That's right. But wait, but they were not exonerated. Okay. They were, they were not exonerated. All that happened was their convictions were overturned. They were set aside because evidence was produced that if a jury had heard it at the time that they were deliberating, they may have come up with a different verdict. Gotcha. Technically, the Central Park Five can be rearrested for the attack on the jogger. Wow. I mean, the statute of limitations is up. I'm not sure what the Constitution, um, you know, what, what the constitutional um, uh, procedure is for, for something like this after this period of time. But they were open after it was set aside to be re-prosecuted. But the fact of the matter is they already did their time. So even if they were re-prosecuted, and they were convicted, right? And remember, this is like 20-something years later. They would have to get the evidence back again. 
We would have to get all the witnesses again. Right. We'd have to get police officers who had long retired back into court again to retry them. And if they were convicted, nothing would occur because they already did their sentences. Right. So all we would have had was the conviction, and that would have been the end of it. <laughs> they would have walked home because, oh, yeah, that's right. You already served your sentence in prison, right. so... Well, you know okay. what else we didn't cover? We didn't cover Trump. We didn't cover his stuff. So there's a lot left. Would you would you agree to do another second hour, maybe in about a month, and we can make a bullet point of stuff that uh, we should cover? Absolutely. Awesome. Cool. Absolutely. Well, th- all right. Well, then let's. Um, what do you recommend? Do you have contact information, or do you have social media, anything like that, where people can reach out to you? Um, I have social media. I mean, uh, I'm on Facebook. Okay. People can look me up there. Uh, try not to try not to curse me out too much <laughs> if you're a supporter of the Central Park Five, because I'm getting a lot of that. Um, well, a lot of, a lot of people want me to go to jail. Um, you know, a lot of people feel that I'm going to hell. Um, to the people that think that I'm going to hell, just uh, just so that you know. I was going to hell anyway for a lot of the partying that I was doing, so don't worry about that. I'm heading that way anyhow. Um, yeah, gotcha. it, you know. So it, Eric Reynolds, E R I C Reynolds, R E Y N O L D S, and that that uh, website you mentioned with all of the uh, in, interrogations was CentralParkAttackers.com. Is that right? Central Park Five joggerattackers.com thank you and those are very important for people to take a look at because you can see the stuff uh, firsthand. but uh, Eric a great conversation man you have so much information I look forward to talking with you again in the future and we can follow this saga like you said you know it's a 10 part documentary there's so much information I'd love to talk to you uh-huh. about the Armstrong report tying back to um, you know what people know about uh, this NAP commission and a very well-known police officer, Frank Serpico, and how there's kind of... I, I'm sorry. Listen, I, I sat down with Michael Armstrong. Okay. He is he is one of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. Oh, cool. You well, know, and um, I, you know, I, 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 I thank him for his help in, in help, you know, helping me research this. But go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, well, let's talk about that. We can... Talk about Armstrong and Ryan and all those other things you brought up, and then uh, people are going to have something to look forward to. So, Eric Reynolds, thank you so much. Thank you, William. I appreciate your time. Awesome. I appreciate you giving me the time to My pleasure. tell the real story of what occurred. My pleasure. Okay. For 40 years, Michael Myers has haunted this town. He is the essence of evil, and evil dies tonight. Halloween Kills, rated R, under 17, not admit without parent, in theaters and streaming only on Peacock now. For 40 years, Michael Myers has haunted this town. He is the essence of evil, and evil dies tonight. Halloween Kills, rated R, under 17, not admit without parent, in theaters and streaming only on Peacock now.